All right. Well, good evening, my friends. Um, I'm really excited to share this word with you tonight. Uh, this is Amos's last vision. As you see there on your handout, we, we have come through four other visions, and tonight is the fifth and final vision. And like many of the others, or unlike many of the others, this one is not aimed at a subgroup like merchants or wealthy. It is for all. So uh, the vision that we're going to study about is of the Lord destroying the temple at Bethel and killing the escapees from the destruction with destruction by the sword. Um, I'm sorry, my notes somehow got a little out of order here, so um, let me kind of catch up on what I want to begin with. Okay, so the vision that the Lord gives Amos is unlike the others that was aimed at a specific group. It is the final vision, and it represents the judgment that is coming to all of Israel, all of those whom Amos has been prophesying to um, and all of the judgments and messages and earlier visions that he's given. Verse 1 says, He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes shall not be delivered. So all the people of Israel will experience God's judgment. If you look on your handout, you'll see the, the outline that I have which kind of is four parts for this vision. The first part is explaining the vision that Amos sees from the Lord. The second part is a testimony of God's sovereignty over all the earth. Then a testimony of God's sovereignty over all of history. And final, finally, a declaration that the sinful nation will be separated and destroyed. And this vision that we're going to read together in a minute is pretty frightening. It describes how no one will escape from God. How he will hunt down all of Israel and they will be killed. I've read this passage many, many times this week. And so I've had the opportunity to be made uncomfortable again and again and again. The wording and the language from what we will read is very hostile. And that's because it's meant to be. That's because God is hostile towards our sin. Hear that. God is hostile towards our sin. Amos was not sent to Israel to give them a pep talk or encouragement. He was sent to warn them. He was sent out of God's mercy to help them understand just how heinous their sin was. So I am not here tonight to point out the sin or the spirits of anyone. Because I know that God is already at work to do that. But my encouragement is 
to each of you is that you would lower your defenses tonight, that you would receive the Lord's word. We have been studying in Amos for many weeks now, and the prophet's words have been crying out to us to greater understand how our sin separates us from God. And as we marvel reading about Israel, and after message after message, how they can be unrepentant and rebellious, I pray that the Lord would quicken us to leave any places that we are in. So let's read together chapter 9 of Amos, verses 1 through 10. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorpost that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last one of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell from there, my hand shall not take them. Excuse me, shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of hosts who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn. All of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel? says the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, The calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. So we have read about Amos' visions of locusts and plumb lines, fires, and summer fruit. And now God uses this image of destruction, death, and captivity And it is the understanding that none will escape God's judgment. See, each of the things that we have read up until now have been for a specific group, so to speak. They've been things that we have been gleaning from, but we've been reading uh, of judgments against Moab, uh, against Judah and Israel. We've been reading messages against particular audiences in different parts of Israel. We've been reading against... Messages or from messages against Amaziah, the high priest, and the king Jeroboam. But now we come to this pinnacle where the Lord says, None who are sinful will escape my judgment. So Amos, in this vision, both sees the Lord by the altar 
and hears him speak. So these first four verses really represent what Amos is seeing. He says, I saw the Lord in verse 1 standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorpost that the thresholds may shake and break them all, break on them the heads of them all. I will slay the last one of them by the sword. So the first thing that we read is that the Lord is standing by the altar. We read in Amos chapter 3.13, in Amos' judgment against Israel, that the Lord says that he would punish the altars of Bethel. So remember, Bethel has been this newly established religious center that made their own temple to rival Jerusalem where true worship is happening. And the Lord wants none of their abomination, their idolatry, their pagan worship. So he says in chapter 3 that he will destroy Bethel and the altar. So now in this vision that Amos sees, the Lord is standing by the altar. He's standing by the altar and Bethel, and he's saying, I will destroy this, and none will survive. In verse 1, it goes on to say, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake. God is saying that he will strike the tops of the pillars of the temple, that the temple would fall. The pillars held the weight of the roof, just like the beams in this room are holding up this room. And the Lord is saying he will strike them so that the roof may shake and that the pillars may fall. So when the pillars crumble and fall, the roof will fall cracking, shattering, and destroying everything underneath it. It says that the destruction of the temple would break on the heads of all of them. All that were in this temple priests and worshipers uh, of false gods and idolatry, this roof would break down on top of them. God's judgment to them would be like an earthquake where the building could not stand still. This was a place that was so called to God's worship. A temple so called to the Lord and he'll destroy it. It says that this judgment would come outside too, that no one in Israel would escape him. Now verses 2 through 4 offer a a really unique set of conditional statements. Conditional meaning, if the people do this, then God will do that. And so for each of them in in 2 through 4, these these statements, there is... There is the initial word that says though. So in in verse 2 it says though they dig into hell. Then the second part of that is from there my hand will take them. So for each of these statements that Amos proposes there is the the conditional statement though or um, that really means even if. Even if they do these things it says from there. And this word from there, I looked it up, I wasn't familiar with it. It's a word that means not just from the place, but from the time. Meaning that anything that we do, the Lord is anticipating it. He has a response for the things that we do. So even if, in verse 2, they dig into hell, from there my hand will take them. 
These people are not going to escape the Lord even if they run to hell to get away from him. He is going to come after them. And from there, he will find them in that place and in that time and he will snatch them up. Next it says, though, even if they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. We can think we are doing exactly what is right, right? Really trying to escape the Lord's judgment. We could even go so far as to try and go all the way up to the heavens. Even if we were to do that, the Lord would snatch us down from that time and from that place. See, these are two extremes in the cosmos, right? In the galaxy, from hell to heaven. There is nowhere that we can run, Amos is saying, and escape God's judgment. So far down as hell or so far up as heaven that the Lord will not find us. Next is another pair of extremes. Verse 3 says, And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there the serpent, I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. So now we have another two extremes. We have Mount Carmel, which was the highest point in the promised land. We cannot hide from the Lord, even on the highest point. Nor can we go to the lowest of lows on the floor of the deepest ocean and avoid the Lord. With these two things, he's saying both physically and spiritually, there is nothing that we can do to escape the Lord. Next, it it says captivity. In verse 4, it says, Though they go into captivity before their enemies. This is almost a comical statement. This isn't the Lord sending them into captivity. This is saying, even if they voluntarily go into captivity, maybe we'll leave here. Maybe we'll go to Babylon. Maybe we'll get out of Israel, out of the promised land, and all that God relationship stuff will just go away and he'll leave us alone. See, Israel, many, even thought that God's power only existed in the promised land. Okay, God is punishing us. We have sinned. Maybe we can leave this place and it will stop. To which the Lord says, absolutely not. Though they go into captivity before their enemies from there, I will command the sword and it will slay them. As crazy as it sounds, I wonder if we've ever thought even our geography, even our location, could allow us to escape from the Lord's knowledge of us, from the Lord's wisdom of us, or from the Lord's judgment of us. This is what Israel thought. Every way that they could be prideful and arrogant, they thought it. They thought they're God's covenant people, so surely God would never actually punish them. They thought, okay, well, at least if we leave the covenant realm, if we leave the promised land, surely God's judgment will not follow us. goes on to say in verse 4, I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. This is a reminder of what the Lord had already told them in Amos 5. You remember that Amos said that you're to seek good and not evil that you're to hate evil and love good. 
Amos was building upon what we know from Deuteronomy that before they went into the promised land, Moses told the people of God, seek good and you will have life. But if you seek evil, it will bring curses upon you. This is exactly what Amos is saying is happening. The Lord has set his eyes on them for harm and not for good. Now this doesn't mean that the Lord is not setting his purpose in motion for them, but it means that he is setting chaos among them and not shalom peace. Here I understand this to mean that instead of good, his protection to keep evil and harm away, God will remove this goodness and protection from them, which will allow evil to have authority to harm them. Again, no one would escape him or his judgment. So verses 5 and 6 are going to be a testimony of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty over all the earth. Let's read 5 and 6 together. It says, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourns. All of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in all the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. I love this passage that right in the middle of this, of this really terrifying vision that Amos has is this what's called a doxology, which is basically a psalm. I mean, this sounds like one of the psalms describing how great and awesome and majestic the Lord is. And we've read a couple of these in Amos. In chapter 4, it was praising God as creator of the universe. In chapter 5, there was one that was praising God as creator and controller of the rain. And here, God is the creator too. He's the one that we just read that touches the earth, that builds the layers of the sky, that calls for the waters of the sea. And each of these verbs, as you see, they are present tense. They are happening now and they are ongoing. Which should be a place of great encouragement to us that even in the midst of this judgment, this this vision of destruction that the Lord says is coming, that Amos pauses to praise the Lord and say, he is the one who puts all things in motions. He was the one who created in the beginning, who put the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens, who created the day from the night, who put the, the waters on the sea, and who put the sky in the sky. This same God is still creating today. His creation has not ended. Meaning that, that he who has begun a work in us will complete it if we allow him to. We should understand that God's creation can be for our good and can be for an instrument of God's judgment on us. Likewise, his judgment can be for good or causing devastation. Right, this same good creation that God had created for mankind can now cause famine and plague and darkness and the things that the Lord has already said. So he is reminding them, and I know this seems almost silly, that we should be, need to be reminded that 
God has all this power and authority. But Amos wouldn't be reminding Israel and us if we didn't need it. If the Lord really has all this power and authority and might and we know how good he is and we know that when he tells us something that it's right and true, then why do we not embrace it? And if we don't embrace it, we need to be reminded that this is the God who put the stars in the sky. And if he can put the stars in the sky, then he should be ordering our lives and then we should be receiving his word. Amos finishes this this hymn, this praise, by saying, The Lord is his name. Yahweh, Adonai, is his name. Verse 7 is really a testimony of God's sovereignty over all mankind. Verse 7 says, Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? So now that God has reminded Israel of who he is, that he is creator, he's reminding them of who they are. Because Israel had quite a puffed out chest of who they were. They were the nation that grew great, that had protection for many years, that none could penetrate their borders. That was Israel. And he says to them, are you not like the Ethiopians to me? God mentions the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Arameans. These were all descendants of Ham, who was Noah's son, that were all cursed for seeing him naked in his drunkenness. You might remember this from Genesis 9. So all of these people we just read about were cursed. And Amos says to Israel, are you not just like the Ethiopians, the Arameans, the Philistines, and the Egyptians to me? Likewise, we in America, we enjoy a great deal of security and protection and confidence as a nation. We think that we are God's chosen people, many do. What if the Lord listed us among the nations of the earth that we might think are down here? are full of idolatry and pagan worship and evil and witchcraft and sorcery and debauchery and all these sins that we could name that we think we are better than those. Or even those among our society that we would say are outcasts compared to us who are following the Lord's ways. Pick a political sin that we think is horrible and imagine that the Lord is naming us among those. The Ethiopians came from Cush, Ham's son. The Egyptians and Philistine came from Han's son in Egypt. The Arameans were the Syrians who came through Cush's son, Nimrod. These are people that we know for their sinfulness. And the Lord says to Israel, you are no different than them among the nations of the world. I believe that the Lord is highlighting to the Israelites that they were not special. They were like all these nations and no better. But God chose them. God chose them to have a covenant with them. And and they took his covenantal love for granted. We are Gentiles. We are no one. We are no one among the nations of of the world. The nation we live in is 
was no one among the nations of the world. But God has blessed us as people and as a nation. He has protected us and he has given us much. Would we be rebuking God's love as well? Because they believed that they could do whatever they wanted and not get hurt. But now this special protection for them would end. They would be treated and judged like all the other nations. So the final section here begins in verse 8. It's describing how the sinful will be separated and destroyed. It begins with behold, meaning because of or since. Read with me in verse 8. Behold, or because the eyes of the Lord, because of all this, I'm sorry, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. See, even now the Israelites had a choice, and I believe even at this very moment, We have a choice. They and we could follow the Lord or go our own way. See, it says that the eyes of the Lord are on this sinful kingdom. They cannot escape his vision. He is looking down upon them and sees every deed that they do. And he will destroy it, meaning the sinful kingdom, from the face of the earth. Yet, Amos gives this great glimmer of hope. He will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There will be a remnant. There will be a small amount that the Lord will spare because they are not a sinful people. But they are being judged just like those that are in sin. They could choose blessings or curses. So God's eyes are on them. To say this again, they cannot hide from him. I was thinking this week about all the the things that the Lord has taught us in Amos over these last several weeks. And how this message is consistent with everything that we've studied. I went to, to kind of write down to remember these things We began with eight judgments against different nations, against Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab, Judah and Israel. And then the Lord gave Amos five sermons to give. One that said, will a lion roar in the forest without prey? Another that says, "Hear hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Another that says, seek God and live. Another that says, what good is the day of the Lord to you? A fifth to say, woe to the greedy. And then the Lord sent Amos four different visions. Locusts, fire, a plumb line, and summer fruit. And all of these messages are consistent with one another. The Lord sees the sin of all. And he sends messenger after messenger to say, enough. Not just to say enough, but to to bring understanding to what sin does. It doesn't just create bad habits and create bad conditions. It completely divides 
holy and unholy. It completely divides those that are in sin and God. God's policy in Amos is to destroy the sinful nations. He says here he'll destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet he will not destroy utterly the house of Jacob. In the next verse, in verse 9, Amos uses his farming imagery because Amos was a farmer. He was a fig tree pruner and a shepherd. He uses this farming imagery with the sieve. So you see this picture of a sieve in front of you, and this was about the best rendition I could find to imagine what a sieve might have looked like in this day. And God says that he will sift Israel like grain in a sieve. Verse 9, he says, For surely I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among the nations. For surely I will command, as if God in the spiritual realm is sending his angel armies to do this sifting. Think about that. This sifting is happening to Israel, but God is commanding it to happen. When God commands, he doesn't just command a small legion of soldiers, but he is commanding brigades and divisions of heavenly host to do his work. And will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. John the Baptist uses a similar metaphor in Matthew 3. He, he speaks of God separating the wheat and the chaff. Both of these metaphors represent the separation of God's faithful people from the unfaithful people. I was reading that farmers in Amos' time used a sieve with holes small enough in it to allow kernels of corn and wheat to go through but not pebbles. Kernels of corn and wheat to go through, but not pebbles. So the kernels would represent this remnant of Israel who are a faithful few. Imagine Amos almost holding this sieve before them and saying that God is going to sift them like corn, like grain, in a sieve. That's what Amos is saying that the Lord does to his people. God's judgment for them would be their exile, and God would use this to sift the people. So we know that God's been giving um, prophecy after prophecy, prophetic word through Amos after prophetic word, and, and he says that at the end of this judgment that they will go into exile. And we know that probably something like 30 years after Amos that the Israelites did go into exile into Assyria. And so what God is saying is that he is going to send his people out in exile among the nations to be sifted. There will be no more temples and places of worship to bring offerings. There will be no more homes of believers in Yeshua to gather to celebrate the Passover. They will be out among the world without brothers and sisters in Yahweh to be encouraged by, and the Lord will sift them. There were few that returned to the promised land. 
Finally, verse 10 says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. This is contrasted, this definite judgment of dying by the sword is contrasted with this almost arrogant statement that Amos is quoting as if all of Israel has said or believed this, that this calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. They believe that. They believe that no enemy could breach their walls, could break into Israel, because the Lord was protecting them. So this week I have been um, seeing this understanding of sifting again and again. And this understanding I think is so powerful to see because it makes so simple what I think we often make so complex. God is holy. Our sin separates us from him. And judgment is an aspect of God's mercy. God's judgment doesn't just punish us. It reminds us of his power. It brings us back for God's purpose. It recalls to us who God is. It makes God known to us. And this is the purpose of Amos' words, was to make God known to them. Because truly Israel at this point didn't know God. If they knew God, they would have turned toward his word when Amos gave it again and again and again. And this word calls out to us if we know God or not. See, we, we, we think we know God, but if we know God, then knowing God changes who we are. Knowing God leads us to repentance. In Israel's case, God was using this illustration of a sieve to show how he would sift out every evil thing that had been committed, that not one deed would pass through judgment. All the sin that Israel had committed, the Lord was going to use this exile to sift them. And I believe what the Lord showed me is that, that this is not just an image for the people in Israel, but that God continues to sift today. Because throughout the Bible, there are examples where hearts are tested to prove faithful or not. And verses that I thought are so easy for us to read and to embrace and to love and to quote, like Proverbs 17.3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Psalm 26.2 David says, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. In James chapter 1, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And 1 Peter 1.7, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, when we hear these verses, this seems like a very different understanding from sifting, right? Because we could read this sifting happening into Israel back here as God's judgment and God's judgment alone, and God is angry and he is full of vengeance, and he is going to fulfill his wrath by bringing judgment on Israel. And we can read these other verses over here and go, oh, that sounds good. God's just making a better person better. God's making those who love him and never break his commandment understand how to never break his commandment even more fully. But the two are the same. The sifting that God was doing was a severe end to a long journey of rebellion. But what we have to grab a hold of is this reality and purpose for God's sifting. We can either be cleansed and refined or we can be removed from God's presence and judged. See, God's sifting and his testing has a perfect goal in mind. And that is to cleanse and refine. But equally so, not less than, not more than, not different than, but equally so, God's sanctification, God's purification, his sifting is to remove sin from his presence because he will not have it in his holiness. And it is up to us where we end up. But God's perfect will will be done. Hear this another way. We can either receive the sifting with gladness for God's glory, or we can refuse it and the enemy has a right to bring destruction. As I've been chewing on this idea of sifting these last several days, I have seen myself being sifted again and again and again. And seen how good God is to do this for us. This is for his goodness. Everything in Amos leads back to the Lord. Every prophecy, every judgment, every hymn of praise is to give glory to the Lord. So in all these things and in all this sifting is God's goodness for his purpose. So the Lord gave me one last scripture to understand this. So turn with me to Acts chapter 9. If you're in the church's Bible on page 1264. Acts chapter 9. Deborah and I were talking about um, Ukraine and Russia this week and talking about President, President Vladimir Putin and talking about instead of having our own perspective on what needs to happen here, who wins, who dies, what needs to happen to this man, praying for his salvation. The Lord said that Deborah, the, uh, excuse me, Deborah said that the Lord the Lord reminded her, thinking of Putin, of this man we call Paul. This man who the world called Saul. This man who was persecuting believers and doing the enemy's work. The Lord brought him low into his knees and he gave him a choice. But I want us to read something that I think has merit for us. 
Let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to him, uh, from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, who were believers, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, who, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So in this story... Saul is persecuting believers and the Lord comes to him and the Lord talks to him and tells him what he's doing is wrong. And then he uses this statement, kicking against the goads. Some of your translations may say pricks, kicking against the pricks. This is an idiom. It was used in Latin and Greek and Hebrew and everyone of this day would use this idiom. It was a common expression that came from farmers who would use basically a cattle prod against an animal, a prick or a goad to poke them where they wanted them to go. So maybe a stubborn ox needed to get moving and they would poke at it with a prick or a goad. Sometimes an animal would kick at this cattle prod, this cattle prick. The more it kicked, the more likely it was that this cattle would get stabbed in the flesh of its body causing greater pain. So Jesus comes to Paul, one that is completely, completely destroying what Jesus has come to do on earth. He is killing believers, he is getting letters from the high priest, he is taking them to jail, and he is delighting in it. And the Lord comes to him and he says this to them, why are you making this harder than it needs to be? Why are you inflicting pain upon yourself? I don't think this was the first time that the Holy Spirit and the Lord were trying to work in Paul's life. Why are you making things harder on yourselves? Why are you destroying yourselves? The Lord showed me that this idiom means to resist his purpose. Israel was resisting the Lord's purpose and causing themselves greater pain. And any sin that we stay in that the Lord has shown us, any sin that we refuse to look at, any place that we choose our way and not the Lord's way, we're resisting his purpose and causing ourselves greater pain. I pray that we would heed these words of Amos tonight that we would follow Paul's example here in verse 6 to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? We cry out with these words and the Lord's direction will come to us. If we think we're waiting on direction from the Lord, if we think we're waiting on the Lord to reveal his ways to us, we call upon his name and he will speak and his word will come. Amen.